A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. The FT. Welcome back to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is the FT's retail banking correspondent, Charlene Goff, and Daniel Schaefer, our investment banking correspondent. This week, we'll take a look at the latest European bank results. Both Deutsche and Credit Suisse have disappointed in their results. We'll discuss the fallout from Barclays AGM last week. Almost a third of investors either voted against or withheld on the remuneration. And that's a really chunky vote for a UK bank. And finally, we'll look to Lloyd's Banking Group's results tomorrow and discuss whether the latest bidding war or lack of bidding war for the bank's 600 branches is, is going to heat up. I don't think we're going to see any kind of deal stitched up between Lloyds and MBNK very quickly. But first to the European results. This time last week we were talking, Daniel, about the US banks and what they, what those results, generally positive I suppose, um, what they suggested would happen in Europe. Your predictions, uh, were they fully kind of borne out by what we saw at uh, the likes of Credit Suisse and Deutsche? Partly, yes. Uh, we've seen uh, that, as I said, Credit Suisse is, is not going to be as strong as some of the US banks we've seen. And uh, indeed, both Deutsche and Credit Suisse have somewhat disappointed in their results. Credit Suisse has, although they've beat expectations in some parts, they have only narrowly escaped the loss in the first quarter, as they, as, as they're, particularly due to the own debt charges that push down their uh, net profit. Oh, yes, 96%. this is. A, I'm sure our listeners yeah. are very familiar with this horrible quirk. But yeah. uh, most banks seem to mark to market their own debt, which in in bad times tends to push up profits, and in good times tends to put it, yeah. push it down. Taking that without that, actually, their their results looked looked okayish. I mean, they've got a twelve percent. Sent ROE in the first quarter, which which looks well. But there are some things that are that have been slightly worrying in their results. One is um, that they actually uh, lost ground in fixed income. Yeah. In a in a quarter that has been really good for 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 all the particularly the U.S. banks and also for Barclays. Mm. Uh, in fact, all uh, U.S. banks uh, have increased their fixed income uh, revenues and profits in in the first quarter. Uh, only Goldman Sachs had a had a drop in revenues. Right. And Credit Suisse had a had a drop by a fifth in its revenues in fixed income. So that yeah. was a slightly worrying trend. And the other one was that um, in the private banking business the the profits fell and the gross margin there still is very much under pressure. So, so the stable business that should really uh, act as a counterbalance to the investment banking operation w- didn't really perform well in the first quarter neither. And on uh, Deutsche? And on Deutsche, I, I have to say, I think I was uh, slightly wrong in the prediction because actually <laughs> <laughs> I thought they would be pretty good in their fixed income operations in particular, but, but, but in fact they didn't uh, perform very well in fixed income uh, neither, partly because they reduced their risk in that business. Yeah. Is this, a, the, is this an early sign of Anshu Jain, the new chief executive or joint chief executive, making his presence felt, although you'd think, I mean, his background is fixed income, you'd think he'd be, you know, this would be a dream kind of quarter for him. But on the other hand, maybe his kind of risk management style uh, which we understand is maybe more cautious than um, Joe Ackerman's had been, is maybe 
taking over. Yeah, I mean, he's he's still now head of the investment bank, so I think it is his influence very much, and it 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 shows his approach of of taking market risk much more into account than than in the past, and being very wary uh, about uh, uh, about market risk going forward. And the other thing about Deutsche is um, that their their net income uh, fell in the first quarter because they got hit by. By some uh, again by some charges on litigation and mm. also by uh, stake sale, so uh, that the stake sale in particular is a sign that they're reducing, that they're starting to reduce their their risk weighted assets and they're starting to to be willing to take charges if mm. it if it helps their capital position because Deutsche still has got a relatively weak capital position. Yeah, this is the big question hanging over Deutsche, really. Will yeah. it, won't it kind of go to the markets to raise capital? And yeah. there were rumours, I think, last week um, that uh, maybe it maybe it was planning something which were refuted by the bank pretty yeah. categorically. But nonetheless, they're going to take every opportunity to build up capital yeah. internally that they can. Yeah. So uh, expect in the future more charges, that one, one-off charges, because they might sell other parts, of smaller parts, in order to, to improve their capital position, which will then term, might, yeah. might trigger w- w- short-term losses. We should have a quick word about the Spanish banks as well. I know um, they don't really fall into your investment banking category, Daniel, but um, yeah. worth mentioning that BBVA and Santander both did remarkably well really at a time when uh, Spain is going through something of a a torrid few weeks again Uh, all the kind of bearishness of the market seems to be focused on Spain particularly at a sovereign level and you'd have thought that all the malaise of the broader Spanish economy would be um, coming to bear on the bank's results but both BBVA and Santander did did reasonably well in in terms of an underlying performance of course their their under kind of bottom line results were dragged down by this extra provisioning that they're having to do to comply with new government rules but I suppose investors may be heartened with the uh, the health of the underlying business. We should uh, move on to our second topic, which is, well, generally investor sentiment towards the banks and, and towards pay in particular. We had, uh, as I said in the introduction, um, Barclays AGM on Friday, uh, where I went, went along to, and I'll talk to Charlene in a minute about that. But Daniel, you were looking at a simultaneous annual meeting at Credit Suisse on Friday. Now, both banks basically had nearly one third of investors uh, voting down the the remuneration report at both banks. As it seems in the light of what happened at Citigroup uh, a few weeks earlier, where actually the, the remuneration report there got completely opposed, there was more than half of investors um, voting against it. It seems there's a real groundswell of opposition to banker pay at the moment from, from investors uh, rather than just from the general public and from politicians now. Mm. Indeed, there is. I mean, Credit Suisse has been very interesting to me because although Brady Dogan, the CEO, has been known for for being paid very highly in the past, um, actually last year his pay was cut by more than 50%. And also the overall bonus pool at Credit Suisse was cut by 41%. So so they had some pretty decent cuts. um, And also... They were w- one of the first to go into more long-term um, uh, incentive structures and to 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 also give uh, bankers other other types of bonuses like like the ones that are uh, tied to 
to particular assets. Uh, this looked like quite an innovative way yeah, of going about things yeah. and pretty closely aligning uh, bankers' remuneration to the underlying performance of the bank. Yeah, would indeed. Thought investors yeah. might like that. Yeah, one would have thought that, in, indeed. Uh, and, and it sounds like quite a sophisticated um, instrument. But actually, um, some investors, particularly uh, one activist fund in, in Switzerland called Ethos, are saying, firstly, the bonus pool uh, has not gone down far enough. So they, are, they really want more to be done. And secondly, uh, Ethos is saying that the bonus structure is still too opaque. And th- these new structures that Credit Suisse has been very innovative with, they're saying, in a way, they are too sophisticated. Mm. So they are too difficult to understand for the investors. And, and so, so, so the, the target structures there are too difficult to, 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 the targets are too difficult to understand. And, and the whole system of remuneration is, is too difficult to understand because of these uh, complex uh, products that have been tied to the bonus structures. And of course, the underlying theme that investors are so kind of peeved about at this juncture in the economic cycle of much lower returns, much lower profits generally, and therefore lower dividends, if any, from the banks, is the kind of split of the spoils, if you like, between the bank's own uh, bank's own staff and what is being paid out to, to shareholders. Yeah, indeed. And that's going to be a huge stop topic still going forward. I mean, 2011 has been quite a dismal year for shareholders in banks. So it's not going to stop at Credit Suisse. Shareholders are going to look at UBS, they're going to look at Deutsche Bank, they're going to look at other European banks and and the pay structures there going forward. So um, Credit Suisse and Barclays won't be the last banks uh, where we'll we'll see some uh, angry investors. No, absolutely. Well, Charlene, let's pick up on that Barclays point because you and I were both there on Friday when uh, there was this fairly spirited uh, atmosphere at the uh, at the Barclays annual meeting. Yeah, I think the AGM had its sort of usual or more than its usual share of theatrics, but it wasn't as hostile as some had feared. No, because was... if you go back the f- the previous couple of weeks, there'd been a lot of noise from people like the ABI, uh, some of the proxy agencies, but also individual investors that either privately or publicly, had been pretty critical of several of the things that were going on at Barclays. Yes, and none of those big investors really stood up and spoke at the AGM, which isn't unusual. It's normally the small shareholders. And, you know, a fair few of those were quite incensed about pay. There was some heckling. There was some booing. There was a very negative reaction to the chairman's speech, particularly when he was talking about efforts that the bank had made to try and, you know, uh, improve the spoils for shareholders and tr- take a balanced approach to remuneration and so on. That didn't go down at all well. But I think the generally speaking, Bob Diamond uh, weathered it fairly well. Came out. Of yeah, it. that's the extraordinary thing, right? So the other person that got fairly uh, lambasted was Alison Carnworth, who's heads of the remuneration committee, and she there was quite a lot of heckling during her talk, even though she was saying things that I think most investors wanted to hear, which was about the you know rebalance between. Yeah. bonuses and, and shareholder returns. She definitely seems to have taken the flack away from Bob and, and it wasn't just the remuneration report that saw this mm. uh, revolt from shareholders. It was also the vote on Alison's re-election herself. She got more than 20% vote against that, which is highly unusual for an yeah. individual director yeah. and quite a shock to the system, I would imagine, for her. Yeah, whereas Bob Diamond himself got more than 99% support. For yeah, re-election. I mean, he was one of the, had, you know, one of the strongest votes in yeah. his favour 
favour. So quite interesting, really. But the but the overall vote, as you as you said at the start, was almost a third of investors either voted against or withheld yeah. on the remuneration, and that's a really chunky vote for a UK bank. We haven't seen one that big yeah. for a long time. And I think even though the atmosphere wasn't as hostile as maybe some might have thought. Nonetheless, I think Barclays got the message that they need to do something quite significant over the next year. Um, And investors are kind of, I think, going to keep up the pressure on that over the coming months. Yeah, I don't think it's enough to say what they've been saying recently, which is, you know, as our performance improves, we hope that we'll pay a higher dividend. You know, all these sort of vague promises, they're just not cutting it with shareholders. They want either stronger, you know, path to... Yeah higher dividends for them or they want some drastic improvements on the way they see the bank structuring remuneration. And, and I think they want specific pledges on kind of, as you said, that kind of how the spoils would be shared going forward. They really like um, both institutional and private investors like what HSBC has done, for example, in saying, you know, there should be a third, a third, a third split between shareholder dividends, bonuses and um, capital buildup. And that's the kind of thing that is lacking at Barclays in terms of any, regardless of whether those are the right numbers for a bank that has a very different business model, um, you know, some kind of indication of what the aspiration is in terms of dividing this up. And I think the other thing that investors are really keen on is more transparency in terms of particularly on on targets for, for pay. Yeah, I mean, that's something that HSBC did actually make some strides forward on this year as we got a quite a detailed scorecard, they called it, of Stuart Gulliver, the chief executive's performance. And you could see quite clearly the areas where he'd hit targets and the areas where he'd fallen down. There were sort of five or six categories and they told you exactly how he'd been measured on each of those. Now, the other banks, you just don't get that. Mm. I mean, the the they say the targets are there, but they're kept behind the scenes you know they're not disclosed they're not in the annual reports that was one of the interesting things actually at the AGM was Marcus Aegis the chairman um, when he was talking he did give a reasonable amount of detail far more than has ever been published about the targets behind the annual bonus that Bob Diamond um, was given 200% of salary for compared to a maximum 250% this is one of the things that investors are so uh, cross about given a, a bad year really for Barclays um, that he got such a high proportion of his mm-hmm. maximum payout on the annual bonus. But he kind of went through about six or seven different metrics, which Bob had scored highly on in a way that hadn't been laid out before. But even mm. so, it was all fairly fuzzy in terms of what were the, you know, in terms of, I don't know, communication with the board. and, and But it was all very soft uh, Yeah, targets. it was lending targets. and the Lending like targets that was one. one yeah. and, and the... The core profitability, you know, return on equity, which is the measure that Barclays has, you know, constantly said that's what it wants to improve. That wasn't in there until recently. I mean, that was the concession no. made in the... Yeah, when they were the under so much pressure, they said, OK, well, we're going to expose this bonus to potential 50% clawback or deferral or whatever uh, yeah. um, if they don't hit a fairly low target, actually, of what, 11.5% in effect with their cost of capital. Um, So I don't know. I think they do need need to do more. But I think they probably, you know, this this vote against did give them a pretty uh, significant wake up call for that. So we'll watch that very closely, as we will all the banks, because I think, you know, we've seen now at City, we've seen at Credit Suisse, Barclays, uh, it's going to be almost newsworthy when a bank doesn't get a shot across its bears from its investors at an AGM. Our final topic for today is Lloyd's and the 
well, fairly predictable outcome uh, so far of the um, attempt to sell their 600 branches. We've um, we've been following this quite closely. The co-op had been in exclusive talks to buy that business, but for weeks now it's looked as if it was going to be something that fell apart uh, because of the regulators' demands on the co-op, really. Um, that happened last week. Yes, well, it hasn't f- totally fallen apart yet. We have to be a bit careful. I mean, Lloyds have still said they're having meaningful discussions with the co-op and the co-op right. were very quick on Friday to come out and say that they were still making progress and were still fairly optimistic. But they are no longer in the position of, of having you know the talks themselves. Lloyd said that they were going to open it up to rival bids. And this really followed on from uh, a, a new bid it had received a couple of weeks before from NBNK. This is an investment vehicle that was set up by Lord Levine about 18 months ago to, to bid for banking assets. Now, it had been sort of pushed to the sidelines recently as Lloyd sort of went ahead with the co-op's bid, but it's been waiting patiently. And as it saw the potential pitfalls in the in the co-ops bid um it came back to Lloyd's with a new offer that was a slightly higher offer valuing the business at closer to 2 billion when before we were thinking about 1.5 billion would be the price um and it's sort of structured in a slightly different way that would effectively underwrite a flotation rather than just be a straight sale uh, now is that more attractive because i mean the signal from Lloyd's had always been you know if co-op falls apart then um you know we're going to float this business there's no we don't really think there's much value in I mean, as an unproven bidder, NBNK, and there's nobody else out there. So, you know, why wouldn't we just float this business? And I suppose the argument against that is that in the current pretty volatile market conditions, the last thing you want to do is try to float a big business. So does this underwriting model address that? I think... It remains to be seen, to Mm. be honest. And that was kind of Lloyd's reaction. They said, "Okay, we take on board what you've offered here, but we can't quite work out whether this is actually brings, you know, benefits to us and is of merit to us over and above a flotation. And that's Mm. what MBNK really now have to go out and prove. I think what Lloyd's is concerned about is the opposite, actually, that they lose a lot of the upside potentially by giving it away. I mean, you know, the feeling among analysts and bankers is that obviously... Uh, MBNK could help to reduce the risk by offering an upfront price. It could, you know, it says it can also help on the sort of structural stuff by establishing a management team, getting the IT framework in place. But they're not going to do that for free. That's going to come at a price for mm. Lloyd's. You know, that that will be offset by a lower price, you would imagine. And so Lloyd's just has to weigh up whether it's worth it. Now, they are pretty confident that they can do the flotation independently. They're hopeful that markets will be in a bit of a better state in 2013. So they could get the flotation away. And actually, they think they can extract a better price by liaising with investors directly. Mm. So at the moment, I would say, you know, if I had to put my money on it, I would say probably the flotation is the most likely outcome at this stage. Um, Potentially, they could bring... MBNK or another bidder in at a later stage, you know, further down the line, I don't think we're going to see any kind of deal stitched up between Lloyds and MBNK very quickly. Lloyds has also been very clear with MBNK that it wants actual evidence that the FSA would not have any objections to its structure. Basically, Lloyds doesn't want a repeat of the last sort of five months that it's had with the co-op. Exactly. That has to be a big question because if the FSA is not happy with an established bank as a bidder, then um, you'd have thought they'd put more hurdles in the way of a a shell isn't proven. I guess the hurdles would be similar for Lloyds to float the business independently. The Mm. standalone business would have to meet all of those anyway. But uh, it's kind of make or break time for MBNK, I think, and that's also been proven today by an 
announcement that we've had from National Australia Bank. Um, yes, because NBNK, that was the one of the few other kind of assets that it had been linked to, this shell potentially buying these Australian uh, yeah. So in the UK, they have Clydesdale and Yorkshire banks. Mm. Um, it's been quite a, a business that's been struggling in the last couple of years. It was quite hit hard by the downturn in commercial real estate. It has very big exposure in that area. And MBNK um, and a couple of other businesses have made some informal approaches to NAB. Now, they've all been rebuffed, basically, because... Uh, the parent company in Australia is being quite stubborn on price and doesn't want to sort of sell for what it perceives as, you know, low valuation. That's all it would get at the moment. So they're instead pushing ahead with quite a drastic restructuring of that business. Now, does Um, this suggest, therefore, that they've been rumoured as sellers of these assets for ages? And as you say, they've been holding out for a kind of, you know, at least book value kind of valuation. Uh, which any potential buyers, I suppose, are saying is unrealistic in the current market conditions. Does the fact that they're going ahead with this pretty drastic restructuring, which is what something between 15 and 20 percent of their workforce they, they're cutting, yeah. I think, 1,400 jobs, does that suggest that they're going to hold on to the business and at least for the medium term? I think, yes. I mean, short to medium term, potentially. Yeah. I mean, we could get a sale two or three years down the line if things start to improve. You know, I think their intention at this point is to clean the business up, get rid of these big commercial real estate provisions they've made you know some quite large provisions against those today they're closing a lot of their um they called them financial solution centers where they did a lot of this lending and essentially sort of retrenching to their core heartland which is scotland and the north of england you know they had expanded into the southeast and southwest and tried to build up a more national presence but that's you know they've signaled that that's not going to um happen so i think the idea is i i you know just to get the business in shape and they're hoping that eventually that might bring in a more attractive price we should say also that um lloyds and rbs actually have their results this week at the very least i suspect we'll we'll get an update of that bidding situation uh for the Lloyd's branches and I I suspect relatively unexciting quarterly results apart from that. Yeah, I mean, it would be interesting to see what kind of comments they have about the UK, given, you know, the news last week that we're back in a technical recession that could hit Lloyd's very hard. And we did see some quite dismal outlooks from Santander UK last week, which again is very exposed to the UK lending uh, market. So I think it's going to be another tough year for Lloyd's. That looks certain. That's it for this week. Thanks very much, Charlene. And thanks also to Daniel. Uh, for your contributions and thank you for listening remember you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking Banking Weekly was produced by Katie Carney until next week goodbye for more downloads go to ft.com forward slash podcasts even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.